So I'm excited uh, for you guys to be here, and I'm excited that we get to finish our series in the Deliverance series on Exodus, where we hope that you have been able to learn how to cultivate intimacy with God and, and actually cultivate intimacy with God, and that's what we want to continue tonight. So if you have a Bible with you, would you open to, not Exodus, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, I think maybe people might go around and hand out Bibles, maybe, if not, there might be Bibles in front of you, you can just grab those. Um, you can also all, uh, open your device and open the app that you usually go to. Maybe while you're at it, you just put it in to, do not disturb so you don't get too distracted. Um, and the text will also be right behind me and for me on that small screen right there too. So with that, let's read the text. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. We're going to go and read it through 10:13. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. No, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sit down to eat and to drink and to get up and indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your guidance. Thank you for your mercy in our lives. Thank you for your presence. And we want more of that, God. We want more of you, more of your presence. And with that, there's also lessons to be learned in there. So what would today just be a way for us to draw closer to you, Lord, to learn different ways of intimacy with you, to feel stretched, to feel welcomed, to be able to surrender to you, Jesus. Mold our hearts and receive what we have today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've been in San Francisco for about eight years now, and one thing that I've observed about the city is that they love their sports team. Uh, sports are super present. Um, the Warriors, as we all know, just swept the Cavaliers to win the third. Um, did I hear a boo out there? Wow. This is 
No, no. <laughs> so this was, this was their third championship in four years, which is pretty crazy, right? We had the Giants winning a, a bunch of, uh, the, chip, of the World Series. Um, but what's, what's happening in the city when the sports team wins, it's just so enthusiastic, and it's so captivating. You just, you're just, even though you might not be a big follower, you just want to be part of it. You just feel inspired of like, man, something great's going on. You know, you see the basketball courts just full with kids that are, that are just like, I want to grow up like, like St Stephen Curry and KD, KD. I want to just play basketball like them, and they feel inspired by that. Because it's a really universal thing for us to know that sports are just an inspiring, very inspiring thing. So for example, as some of you know, I'm German. I am. That's where my accent's from. Uh, so along with me and about uh, 4 billion other people, we have one favorite common sport. That sport is called foosball. <laughs> now, you guys know it as soccer, which is okay, um, because football was already taken, and I don't know if you guys knew this, but American football is called football because the ball is a foot long, not because they kick it every once in a while. But for Germans, soccer is an obsession, and sometimes even more than an obsession, it's a religion. There's actually studies, religious studies on that, of how <laughs> soccer compares to a religion in Germany. Uh, but that's not the topic here. But I can't talk about soccer and German, Germany without mentioning our awful, um, our awful t um, playing at the World Cup this year. This year. Um, I don't know what happened. Well, I, I do know what happened, but it was pretty <laughs> awful. Um, so we came in thinking that we're just going to own this, right? We're like, we are the reigning world champions. No other team before has defended that title. We just got this, and we're going to do it. What ends up happening is we just played the worst World Cup I've ever seen, or we've actually ever had in, in our World Cup history. But then there was this one moment that I want to invite you into that just was inspiring and just a magical moment. So I want you to just invite with, with you guys to just endure in my, in my, my love for soccer with me for a second, okay? So imagine with me. Germany is playing their second group game. They're playing Sweden. Um, we go down one nothing after a horrible mistake by one of our star players named Tony Kroos. Uh, Sweden goes and gets the ball and scores the goal, one nothing in a halftime, and we need to win this game in order to actually keep our chances alive to make it into this ne next round, right? Which is a really a weird position to be in as a reigning world champion. So second, second half starts, um, Germans come out, they score the tying goal, and then nothing happens for the rest of the game, for like up to the 90th minute, this is a tie, and it's crazy. Then in the 95th minute, literally the last minute, Germany gets a free kick awarded. Now that free kick was in this just impossible angle, and I think there's a picture of it, right? Yeah, there it is. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that angle. It's just, it's ridiculous. If you don't know soccer, it's a ridiculous angle. If you know soccer, you know this is a ridiculous angle. You see that guy on the left, right? He's going to take the shot and somehow trying to make it around those two defenders who are going to run at him into the goal where this goalie is standing back there and is going to guard it, right? He's like, that's just impossible. Actually, statistically speaking, 6% of all free kicks make in. 6%. The chance that this guy is making in is very, very low. But what happens is he scores the goal and we win the game. And we're just, we're just celebrating. We're like partying. And then the next game, we lose against South Korea and out of the World Cup. <laughs> but it was inspiring. It was inspiring to watch this. And I caught myself on Tuesday, the following Tuesday, to go out and play soccer. I was like, I'm just going to you know, take a free kick like Tony Crows and just going to make it in. And that ball went way above. Like, it just was not, it was not happening. I, there's this inspiration that we feel. But actually trying to make it happen is not working a lot of times. 
Now, just as much as I'm sports crazy, it seems to me like Paul had something for sports going on, right? Um, the sport that he was impressed by, that he was talking about here in, in the text that we read, was uh, the, the sport of running track. Um, and what he was inspired specifically about running track is the drive of the runners, the ri- drive that the runners had. Here's the thing about runners, and I don't know too much about running because I only play soccer once a week, but they practiced like crazy. Even in the, in the, ancient, in the ancient Greek and the ancient Roman Empire, these people were disciplined people who would practice, practice, and practice. Practice their mind, they practice their, their body. Um, they would be so in shape in order to compete at all times. And the crazy thing about it is that if they, if they actually run that race, there's only one winner. They're all in shape, but there's one guy who's only going to win it. So Paul's looking at that game, at that, at that sport, which later becomes part of the Olympics and is going to the Olympics. Uh, and his whole point is that they're running a, a, a race and they put their lives and everything that they have into this but may not even get a prize. The inspiration Paul draws is the inspiration of how we as Christians run our race. Because we are in a, in a weird so-called faith race as well. The race that we are in is the, the race of the Christian life. And for that, he says that we need to be in shape. We need to be in shape that if we face difficulties or things that drive us or things that come in us, that we can face them well. And the cool thing is that we are actually not competing against each other. We're all running together in this race. And then we get a price. And Paul says that this price is not just a price. It's an everlasting and eternal price. It's something so precious that the world cannot offer you that it's so worth going after. Eternity, fulfillment, being close to Jesus for eternity. But now you might be sitting there and it's like, well, I thought we were talking about Exodus. How in the world does sports have to do with Exodus? This is just a weird, weird thing, right? But Paul doesn't just do this by coincidence. The way Paul saw the Israelites in the wilderness was like in a friendly competition with each other. If Paul would have had the example of a team sport like soccer or American football, I'm sure he would have used that, but there were no team sports around that time, so he had to use the track analogy. So you just envision yourself, the Israelites, and how they're playing a team sport together. They're together in this race. They're running together in this. And they're all in the same shape. They all have the same chances to grow in their faith. They're running together, and they have the equal, the equal same experiences of God. They're shaped by the same experiences of liberation, of miracles, of God's presence. They all had the same. They're running this race together. And the price that was set before them was the promised land. That's what the price that they had, where, where they were just the land of milk and honey, where they would feel satisfied. And now here's a little spoiler alert. If you don't want to hear the end of the five books of Moses, then you might want to clear, clear, close your ears. But... The spoiler alert is that out of the whole Exodus generation, only two people made into the promised land. All these people ran together. All them, they all had the same experience, the all chances to draw close to God, but only two of them made into the promised land. The rest of them were disqualified in the wilderness. And disqualification for them meant that they never made it into the promised land. They actually died in the wilderness. They did not make it. Now, it, the weird thing is that 
the translators have put this chapter break in there between chapter 9, verses 10, but it was not originally there. It was actually a cohesive reading where it would have made sense that you would connect the com competition of a, of a tra track runner with the experience of the Israelites. It was all one unifying thing. And the reason why um, you get there is so that you can ask yourself a question. And the question is, well, what then hindered these people from entering into the promised land? What hindered them from getting the price that was set before them? And we read in verse 6 about that. Verse 6, chapter 10 says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Or in the Greek it says, They craved what was evil. So it seems that the outward expressions of the Israelites, the actions of some of their cravings of their hearts, is what actually kept them from entering the promised land. You see, there was still too much of Egypt in the Israelites for them to actually enter the promised land. They craved that, what, Israel, what, what Egypt shaped Israel to be. And the first example that Paul talks about is idolatry. Um, the reference that he makes here, it's, it's the golden calf story. The, the really shaping and interesting, weird story about the golden calf. So what's happening? Israel is impatient on waiting on God. Moses is up on the mountain, hanging out with God, having a good old time, and they're just sitting at the, at the mountain, we're like, well, what, when, we want to worship God, we want to do this. So what they do is they're like, they go to Aaron and say, Aaron, we want God, and we want him here, and we want him now, so do something about it. So they give him, they give him all their gold, everything that they just got from when they escaped to Israel, uh, Egypt. And they say, take our gold and make us an image of Yahweh so that we can worship him. So Aaron sits there and takes with all this gold in his feet. He's like, man, okay, I'm really challenged. You got to do something here. I got to really step up my game. And so he's thinking through. It's like, okay, in Egypt, we remember we, we worshiped a bull. The bull is just too strong, it's just, you know, it's just tough, it's just a little bit intimidating to worship an idol like that. It's just, you know, maybe we just need something that's a little bit like cuter, a little bit more relatable, like a little bit easier God. And so he comes up with the great idea of making a calf. And so he makes that calf, and then scripture tells us that the next day, the people rose early, and they sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offering. Okay. This is an important one. This is crazy. If you guys really get it, this is a crazy moment. What's happening here is that the Israelites craved to worship God, the God that, that liberated them out of Israel, that was walking with them, so they make themselves an idol of God, an image of God, and they break one of the Ten Commandments right there. They literally made, made, made themselves an image that they can now worship God, and they worship that idol, by, they're breaking the command, they're worshiping that idol the way that Yahweh instructs them to be worshipped and only him to be worshipped. And then comes the reference that Paul says here. He says, or in, in, uh, in Exodus it says, afterward they sat down to eat and to drink and to go, got up and, and indulge in revelry. So this is what's going on here. Israel is so freaking confused that they just mix all of their worship experiences together. 
they have this craving, and they want to still this craving. They have this craving to worship God, and they still this craving. So they built themselves an idol. They worship it the way that Yahweh wants to be worshipped. And then they continue that worship in this verse. They continue this worship through feasting of the things that, they sac- that was sacrificed to an idol. And, and then they even indulge in, re- in revelry. So the point here is, is that Israel is totally confused in the idol worship. They follow their cravings and their way their understanding has been shaped and they just mix it all together. All right, let's, get a, let's take a little bit, zoom in a little bit on, on what idols are, because idols are harder for us to relate to. We don't really have carved images, you know, in, in our living rooms that we just burn some incense to. Um, so I want to quote to you one of my fellow Germans and good friends, Martin Luther. <laughs> he says, in the larger catechism, he says this, Worauf du nun dein Herz hängst und verlässest, das ist eigentlich dein Gott. Right? Okay, I'll, tra- I'll translate it for you. I'll translate it for you. I actually didn't find, I didn't find a good translation, so I just translated myself, which is fine. So what, what Luther says here is, so what your heart is set on and what you rely on, that is actually your God. What, what he's talking about and what the Bible's talking about is that things that make you feel good, things that give you comfort, those are the idols, and that's idol worship right there. And I don't think our society lacks of idol, idols that we get to worship. You see, your God is what you've identi- identified yourself as the thing that you need in life. It's what you've set your, your heart on. It's where you would say that if I would only have that, I would feel fulfilled. Or your idol is the thing that you have in your life, and you say, if I would lose this, I wouldn't make it. I would have to die. One of the things that I picked out as a good example here was careers, because I think we all have a very career-oriented people. And in general, careers is not a bad thing. You know, you want to you work, right? God has commanded us to work. But when you give everything you have and just lean into your career, and that's everything that you're consumed by, then it's easy to make your career your idol. And you can see when your career your idol, so when you can see other things when, you, when, when they become your idol, when your whole ecosystem around you supports your thoughts and your cravings in your heart. Your news feed, your social media, your friend groups, the things that you spend your time on, the resources, the energy, all that informs you and in how you shape your idol. You just sit there and craft your idol with your ideas, with your thoughts. You wrap your mind about this idea and you're consumed by it. And then you actually come to community group or to church and your prayer is just, God, give me this career. Give me this promotion. I just need that. I just need that one thing and then, uh, then I'll be good. Maybe it's just that you want to be known by people. You want to do the next big thing, or you want to just make it. But at that point, God just becomes a means to an end. And really what you're craving for and what you've created for yourself is an idol. And that is idolatry. It is is satisfying your own cravings. Another way that Paul says we satisfy our own cravings is through sexual immorality. I know, this is going to be a fun one. 
been looking forward all week to this. First sermon ever taught, and first thing is sexual morality I get to talk about. Okay, the event that Paul refers to here is in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. And the story goes something like this. There are some Moabite women who God actually said to not hang out with. And they invite the men of Israel over and say, hey, just come hang out. We'll, we'll have a party. We have some food there. And we'll just, we'll just have a good time. So the Israelite men go over. The food that they're actually getting is food that was sacrificed to an idol, to their idol, which is Baal, which is actually a bull-like god. So we're back to the golden calf. The party goes late. There's a lot of alcohol. And they end up just having sex. That's the end of the story. That's what Paul identifies as sexual morality. And the Corinthians, if you read the, the letter to the Corinthians, they were actually really confused about the sexual integrity as Christians. And so Paul dedicates a good chunk of, of the letter to talk about that specific topic. So what Paul is saying in the letter to the Corinthians, he's saying, if you have sex with anyone, you unite yourself with that person. You're becoming one. You're, just, you're, you're making something happen that is meant to be happened through sex that, that, that is a natural, strong bond that is created into there. And he doesn't just make this up. The reason why he says this specific language around uniting is because that's his understanding of Genesis 2, verse 4. In Genesis 2, verse 4, God actually um, has a marriage ceremony uh, for Adam and Eve. And, and what the language there says is that God unites them into one. In that, cere- in that ceremony, he says, you're united, you're one, now take pleasure in yourself, enjoy each other, and be fruitful and multiply. So how Paul defines sexual morality is this. Sexual morality is sexual engagement with anyone in any way that is outside of marriage and not with your spouse. Now, the the thing is that this is a hot topic in our community groups. I know that because as a minister in the community group department, I have a lot of conversations around this. And there is a lot of talk about this. And one thing I know is that a lot of us interpret silence and not hearing about this and the culture around us that just says everything's okay, just do yourself. And so we're okay with it. We just do it. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. A few weeks ago, Pastor Dave said that what you do with your body actually matters. And that's exactly what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians too. I don't know who agrees with who. Maybe it was Dave agreeing with Paul, Paul agreeing with Dave. But they agree with each other. That what you actually physically do with your body matters, and this is why. When you were saved, when you gave your life to Jesus, you didn't just give some inward being, some soul, some future self of yourself to him. You gave your whole body to him. Your physical body, your emotions, your inner being, your everything, your full person is dedicated to God. And he bought that with a precious price on Golgotha. And you have accepted that. So you've given your whole self over to him. So therefore, what you do with your body matters because now, by accepting him, you've become a representative of him. Now, this is this weird thing, and I just, might just be the guy known for sports analogies, but um, I don't know if you guys remember Alden Smith. He was playing for the 49ers. Um, but he got in trouble with the law. 
He got in trouble with the law, not at the, at the facilities. He was just out there and had some really bad things going on. Um, police pulls him over, and what's happening? He's not only been sent to jail, the, the 49ers actually kicked him out because he was a representative of the 49ers in what he was doing. And now this is a small example. You, you know, if you work for a company and you go out to a bar and start a fight, it might, your company might take actions on that because you're a representative of that company. And that's who you are for Jesus. You are a representative for Jesus. As Christians, the word Christian actually means that you're like a little Jesus. That's who you are. Okay, I know this is hard. I know this is like just an easy thing to say, but just like, man, you, you might get it. You're married, so you might not get it. But this whole sex drive thing, that's, it's a hard thing. It's, it's hard to handle. And I get that, especially when everything around us in our culture just points towards sex and the fulfillment you can find in sex. And then you tell me to abstain, and that's just hard. That's a hard thing. Because it's so easy for us to still our cravings. So I want to invite you into some things. I don't want to just leave it there. I want to invite you into some things. Because when you really long, when you really look at what sex does, what you really long for is intimacy. You really long for intimacy. This whole series is about creating intimacy with Christ. So how can we still our longing for intimacy? I think, and I'm not just saying this because I'm partial, but the gift of community is one of the biggest ways for you. And I really, really hope that this church and this community is a supporting community to you. I really, really want this to be a place where there's no one that feels shame about their deep struggles. And I want to tell you one thing. Nobody lives the perfect life that they display on Instagram. It's just a facade. It's just a, a beautiful way of showing how things can be. But behind all that, we are all struggling. We are all struggling with something, and that's okay. That's a fine. Because if we were not struggling with something, if we would just live a perfect life, we wouldn't need Jesus. There's no need for Jesus. There's no need for being rescued. And so I really hope that community can be a gateway into experiencing good and beautiful intimacy with each other and with God. Secondly, if you're struggling with pornography, I know I said that at church, <laughs> but there are actually ways to protect yourself. You know, the, the phone that you have in your pocket actually has built-in features where you can put up restrictions to not look at certain things. There's apps that you can download that can help you keeping yourself accountable to that. You don't have to use the devices that are given to still your cravings. And I want to say one other thing. If you think, Toby, you don't understand this. I'm way too deep in this already. It's not too late. Because what Jesus promises is that if you confess your sins, that he is faithful to forgive it. And then in repentance, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow of your sin. We commit to forsake, to follow those cravings and, and walk in obedience to Christ. All right, last topic. Last topic is grumbling. Uh, now, Israel grumbled a whole lot. Let me, let me point you to one example. Uh, Numbers 21, verse 5. 
they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Israel grumbles against the provision that God's making for them. They're actually grumbling and lying straight up in his face. Because you see the confusion even in their language right there. You say, on one hand they say, hey, we have no bread. On the other hand it's like, if we have no bread, we're dying. On the other hand it's like, well, the food that you're giving us is, is just miserable. Like, I didn't even want that food. It's gross. It's like there's just confused people. Grumbling is and comes out of a discontentment with what God is, is providing for us. Now, I want to point out one thing in this, is that there's a, there's a difference between grumbling and um, rightful complaining. In grumbling, you impugn God with wrong. You say it's all your fault. It's all your fault. In right complaining, you express to God that life on earth is rough. It's hard. And that living in a fallen and cruel world is just sometimes unbearable. And I not only invite you into that rightful complaining, God actually wants that. He wants to hear those things. Because he doesn't believe that you just live an Instagram perfect life. He knows that there are things, that there's things going on. Now, you might be a point right now where you say, man, I'm just ready to complain about the sermon. Because <laughs> this was a tough word that, that Toby gave to us. But if we would end the sermon here, I would not preach the gospel to you. Because the gospel is the message of hope. Paul ends this, this passage with the hopefulness of the gospel. He says that temptations, they will come. Those cravings, they will come. They are there. And just know that they're known to mankind for everybody. They've been known to mankind. Everybody has struggled with these things. But, that, but he reminds the Corinthians, and he reminds us today, that he is faithful. He is faithful in all of that. He will not allow you to be taken over by your cravings, by those temptations. It's actually your choice if you want to give yourself over to these temptations and those cravings. And he can and will provide a way out. Now, worshiping your career or money as your God, it will not fulfill you. It will not fulfill your longings. Because what, what happens if you crave money or career is that you just crave more and more and more of it. It will never still your longings. And eventually it will lead to exhaustion and burnout. But when you follow Jesus, he promises rest for the weary. He says that he is gentle and humble in heart and that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light. And on top of that, you get the, the eternal price the price of eternity. When you really long to fulfill your sexual desires, your deep longing for intimacy, Jesus is inviting you in to be intimate with him. There's so much more to be discovered when you're intimate with him, when you seek him out, when you, when you sit with him. Because as, as much as community is a gift, communing with God is fulfilling. It's so fulfilling. 
And then there's grumbling, which is discontentment. You're discontent with what God has provided. You know what? God has actually provided everything you have for you. All that you have is his provision. And he gives more. There's more to what he provides. Because what he invites you in as, your sons, as his sons and daughters, he invites you into the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, where we will have sufficient in everything. So I want to wrap up with one final quick mention here. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul says that the spiritual rock that accompanied um, the Israelites was Christ. In rabbinical understanding, the rock that Moses hit once in the Exodus story, or he hit it th three times actually, that's why he didn't make it into the promised land, that it was thought to be from God. They actually thought that the rock there was from God and was some divine thing. So every time Israel needed water, the rock gave them, wa the rock gave them water. Um, they believe that because at the end of Numbers, the same rock shows up again. And he provides water for them again. So what Paul is saying here is that the rock was Christ and that Christ supplied the Israelites with sustaining water. And here's what that means. That Jesus is with you in the wilderness. That Jesus knows how to follow us around. And that he says to us, I'm really what you're longing for. I really satisfy your cravings because he's the only one who can offer you living water. Let's pray. God, it is your living water that we crave. And it's your closeness that we actually want. So God, would you draw near as we draw near to you? Would you invite us into ways to be closer with you where you don't say these things to shame us, you say these things because you invite us in to deeper intimacy, to closer understanding of who you are, understanding more of who you are. You are faithful and you are good. And that's why we, we can serve you and love you and that's why you care for us so well. Would you hear our complaining, God? Would you hear just the hardships that living in this world and being a human being gives, God? Receive that and be well with us, Lord. We need you. We do. So do what you do best, Lord. Be present and redeem and restore things that are broken tonight. Praise things in your precious name.